Hello and welcome to The Hopitarian Show. I am Shane. You can follow me on Twitter at The Hopitarian. And don't forget to follow and subscribe to our Odyssey and BitChute channels. My guest today here is Oliver Ja. How are you doing, sir? Oh, very good. It's wonderful to be with you again. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, so for those who aren't uh, familiar with you and your work, uh, tell a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm an international relations PhD student uh, located in Kyoto, Japan, and my research focuses on Japan-Korea relations. And I'm also a social media editor for the website NK News. Uh, we're a specialist site that covers everything happening related to with North Korea. So news, culture, history, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. And uh, speaking of NK News, that's the main reason that I wanted you on is to talk about this article that you had written uh, that's titled One Country, One System, How North Korea, Hong Kong Ties Pivot Around China. So we'll just get right into it. How exactly does North Korea and Hong Kong ties a pivot around China? Right. Well, um, I think, you know, before before COVID and before Ukraine, I think that a big issue that a lot of the world was focused on was Hong Kong, the Hong Kong independence issue. And uh, so, you know, if your uh, listeners aren't in the loop, basically the, the deal was that after mainland China took Hong Kong back from the British in uh, 1997, the idea was that until 2047, you would have uh, one country, two systems so that Hong Kong would have some degree of autonomy. It would have its own political leaders, its own political system. And throughout this 50 year period, eventually it would be handed over back to mainland China to integrate into that system. But. Unfortunately, we've seen in the last couple of years that uh, mainland China sort of gotten a head start on that. They've really been cracking down on freedoms in Hong Kong. Uh, what really kickstarted all of these protests was uh, the this law that would basically extradite uh, citizens who left Hong Kong back to mainland China if they left, if there was any like uh, cases related to like the PRC. And what really scared people about this was basically if there were any political dissidents that criticized the Chinese government from Hong Kong, basically they could be extradited from anywhere in the world and brought back to mainland China to face trial from the PRC. But um, yeah, so then basically this kickstarted a whole uh, you know series of protests that uh, slowed down during the pandemic just because COVID-19 made everybody stay indoors. And of course the PRC, they took advantage of that to prevent protesters from demonstrating. But basically from like this one national security law, uh, China has just been clamping down more and more on, uh, you know, liberties and personal freedoms for the people of Hong Kong. So that's the mainland influence of China encroaching in on this city, on Hong Kong. Now, where North Korea is involved is, is that I'm sure a lot of people know China is North Korea's number one economic trading partner. It's the lifeline for the regime. It's what provides North Korea with what it needs to survive. Now, Hong Kong is sort of like in this gray area between mainland China and North Korea. As we know, North uh, sorry, Hong Kong is very good for business throughout Asia. It's a hub for so much commerce, um, for so much business between various Asian countries. So what North Korea does is they set up these shell companies or uh, various fronts to get around international sanctions. And as uh, the mainland influence encroaches onto the island of Hong Kong, Basically, the fear is, is that China will be less willing to cooperate with international authorities in enforcing these sanctions. And then basically North Korea will be able to get scot-free with its illegal operations. So you're, you mentioned uh, 
one country, two systems and how that kind of uh, like you're talking about Hong Kong being in this gray area and how it's looked at as, I suppose, more of a capitalist economic yes. government as opposed to the rest of the mainland. So can you kind of talk about exactly what uh, is a one country, two system principle? Right. Well, basically, it was just the idea that Hong Kong could choose its own leaders and that, you know, it would still enjoy sort of the, the degree of freedoms it had, you know, under the, the British, which kind of sounds like, you know, almost like an oxymoron freedoms under, you know, British colonialists. But the irony is, is that during these protests, uh, you had Hong Kong protesters waving British flags and sort of almost suggesting that things were better underneath, you know, the, the British rule rather than Chinese rule. But I think like uh, altogether, the idea was that Hong Kong, the people of Hong Kong and the government of Hong Kong wanted to have its own autonomy away from the PRC. Because when you compare life in Hong Kong to life on mainland China, there's really no contest. The standard of living is much better in Hong Kong. Uh, you still have freedom of speech. Uh, personally, for me, I grew up watching Hong Kong movies and I thought they were the best in the uh, mid 90s. And then when they were handed over back to China, that influence from mainland China basically sort of like stunted the growth of the Hong Kong film industry in terms of, you know, creative quality. So just as like one example. So culturally, politically, socially, the people of Hong Kong wanted to maintain all of that. But as we've seen throughout the last couple of years, there's been more mainland influence slowly encroaching on, on the island. And uh, now basically uh, as early as about uh, two years, two, three years ago, uh, the last, uh, newspaper in Hong Kong that could criticize the PRC that had basically freedom of the press that was shut down. So uh, even though we, it was supposed to be until 2047, here we are in 2022, you know, decades before this is supposed to happen, we already see that life in Hong Kong is radically changing. And unfortunately, I think uh, its best days are behind it. So would you say that, uh, and I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe when Hong Kong was under British rule. It was agreed upon that they were going to give it back to China in, uh, I believe, 97, I think it was. Yes. Um, do you think that could have been something that maybe would have been renegotiated in terms of, because now we look at what, like you're saying, what's happening in Hong Kong right now and how it's drastically different from what it was like under British rule. Now, I mean, Maybe being under any rule for some people just sounds terrible. Yeah. But I guess when you compare and contrast, it's kind of it's kind of like, well, maybe I'd rather be under this rule than another. And again, that's like one of the like, I don't know, take the lesser two evils, I suppose. But when you kind of like you're saying, when you look at how the differences in terms of like like you're saying with the movies, for example, from the like like from the 80s to 90s, the the Hong Kong movies were like. They were the best, you know, uh, the, the action movies. Yeah. Uh, just, just as like an example, I saw a restoration of the film A Better Tomorrow recently. It's one of uh, John Liu's earliest films with Chow Yun-Fat. And uh, I'm seeing just like how it portrayed Hong Kong during the 1980s. And I'm just thinking to myself, man, this things were just so much better back then. It was, you know, that was like the peak of like, you know, just uh, cultural expression of cinematic expression. But unfortunately, a lot of Hong Kong films now, they're basically just like the same thing as mainland films. And uh, and, and also, like, if you release a film, like, in Hong Kong, you have to, like, make it with, like, you know, the mainland audience in mind, too, if you want to make money as well. And uh, just as, like, an extension of that, we see actors like Jackie Chan, um, even Donnie Yen, all these, like, uh, you know, once beloved Chinese actors, they support the CCP. Now, 
it's debated whether do they actually support the CCP from like their heart? Do they actually believe in all of this? But whether they believe in it or they don't believe it, I think it's kind of irrelevant. You have to either say nothing or you have to publicly support them. If you come out in favor of the Hong Kong protesters, that can negatively affect your career. And we've seen with multiple Hong Kong actors, singers, that when they support the protests, that they really, that really hurts their business. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, like, like you were saying with Jackie Chan, I mean, uh, some of his movies were definitely had that pro Hong Kong type of influence. And now it's it's like almost a complete opposite. It, it, I mean, it's it's really sad, really. I know. That, what happened to him and from and being from, from being someone who was beloved by Hong Kongers to now they're like, I don't even want to hear that guy's name spoken oh, around it. here. <laughs> and yeah. it's funny too, because like in the West, we have this image of Jackie Chan as being like this fun, lovable guy, you know, the everyman, at least like as he was like in his old movies. But if you look into Jackie Chan of like what he actually believes and what he's actually said, yeah, he's, he's really pro PRC and he's really done a lot to help promote the image of the communist party of China. Yeah. And another thing about that too is, when Hollywood releases their movies and like you were saying, they have to appease to the Chinese and how, whatever their rules are. I mean, you see like, I mean, a, a huge prime example of that is when we saw uh, the star Wars episode seven and their poster, when you see Finn on the American poster, but then in the, in the, in the Chinese posters, like, he just, he's not, it's like, he's not even in the movie anymore. Yeah. It's, and, and I, I could be I'm not entirely sure if this was mainland China. I think it was. But like in episode nine, there was a whole hype over like the uh, lesbian kiss between two female ca uh, characters. It's really a blink and you'll miss it scene. But everybody was always like joking, saying, yeah, it's a blink and you'll miss it scene because they can cut it out from the international version and nobody will notice. <laughs> so, yeah, and there's a bit of there's, there's, of course, you know, the hypocrisy of like the Western companies, too, where like they pretend to or they they put this like posturing that they're progressive, you know, therefore all these progressive left wing causes. But when it comes to actually making money and distributing their films in countries like China, they have to cut them to appease the local censors. So how, how do you think that just how do you think that came to be in terms like. Was it I mean, obviously, it wasn't always like that. So right. was it just something that the Chinese government was like waiting and rubbing their hands like, oh, I can't wait to get that Hong Kong back. I'm gonna show them who's boss, that type of thing. Like, do you do you know yeah. what happened or do you have any kind of like theories about that? Well, well, to go back to your original question of the handover, you know, like what was the mentality at the time? I think a lot of people were hopeful that China would change because you have to keep in mind that, you know, after the Cultural Revolution, after like all the economic reforms under Deng Xiaoping, everybody thought that like, you know, China would become, you know, like this economic powerhouse, which it did. But it became an economic powerhouse without actually having freedoms for its people. And uh, this was, just, I think, the high point of this, of this like culture that was during 2008 during the Beijing Olympics, because now we finally see, oh, China is like participating in the Olympics. It's a respected member of the world stage. Uh, you know, we can have like this, all this cooperation with Western countries like the US. But unfortunately, with Xi Jinping taking over and de declaring himself president for life, he's basically his mentality is almost like Mao Zedong, where he wants to like have this cult of personality around him and he wants to centralize power as much as possible. And uh, with China, mainland Chinese people in particular, people growing up today, they don't understand what the Cultural Revolution is. They don't know how bad it was. So uh, my father, he lived through the Cultural Revolution. He was born in 1954 and he lived through all 10 years of the Cultural Revolution. So his generation of, of all else knew what it was like. 
but people who are born today and who are like raised especially like you know we talk we always make fun of like millennials and zoomers for like not knowing anything about like their past like you know in us uk whatever but it's the same thing in china too they don't know what came before them they don't have any memory of the cold war and um especially because the uh, chinese communist party is like cracking down on dissent especially with social media and everything unless you have like foreign friends or unless you're regularly like using vpns and you know making an active effort to look for foreign media you're only getting one narrative from the CCP. So China is going right now in a very scary direction where they're going to basically try to like make the, for of the Chinese people, they're trying to create this like nationalist identity, this Chinese identity to go against the rest of the world. And um, the real question is, is like, how long can this last for? Now, this is, it's very similar to like sort of like in the eighties where everybody was afraid that Japan would take over. It would be number one. It would like, it was buying businesses in America. It was taking over everything. But uh, I'm not just saying this because I live in Japan and that I like Japan. I think Chinese hegemony would be a lot worse than Japanese hegemony, for one thing. Well, maybe they're thinking when, like, with World War II and how yeah. it was the Axis powers and, and all that. So maybe that's what they're thinking in terms of, like, oh, yeah, Japan would be bad because yeah. they're, they're siding with the Nazis. So obviously that was not good. But, but it's, I just bring it up because it's very interesting. Like in retrospect, we look back on that sort of almost like with like a kind of a quaint feeling where like, I can't believe we were so scared of Japan for doing this because it one, there are allies and like, you know, they're a democratic country, but also two, I mean, they basically got so drunk off their own success. Like when like the economy burst, like the bubble burst, you know, now Japan, Japan is still like, it's the number two economy or no number three economy. So it's still doing fine. But uh, the idea is like, can, will China follow the same path? And um, it's too early to say, but I think China will probably have similar problems to Japan regarding its like aging population. And uh, also more than Japan, you know, what kind of quality of life can you have among its citizens? But regardless of what happens, like politically, at least the CCP is going to try to exercise as much control as possible. And to give credit where it's due, they've done a good job of basically, you know, getting influence where it is. If you go to like other countries like, you know, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, they have so many trading deals with China. And if any like person like, you know, for example, if you ask, like, is Taiwan part of China? All the politicians have to say that they agree to the one China policy or that Taiwan is a part of China. But deep down, like in the hearts of these politicians, the hearts of these leaders, they support Taiwan and they know that Taiwan is like an autonomous country that deserves to be protected. And we see this also with you know Biden, the Biden administration's posturing towards you know Taiwan China issues and a lot of these countries sort of supporting Ta Taiwanese autonomy especially in the wake of the Ukraine crisis so like you were saying how Japan kind of went in one direction in terms of being this economic powerhouse and China still being trade partners like you were saying with other countries and everything like that but they're still kind of in that mindset of we're going to be this one rule dictatorship, whatever you want to call it. They're still there. So for all the free marketers who are, who are thinking, well, if you just trade with them, they'll, they'll come to our side. They'll just, they'll, yes. they'll, they'll understand where obviously it hasn't worked out. It hasn't worked out that way. Yeah. So how do you kind of, okay. So I guess where I'm going with that is, if Japan is able to go the direction that they're going, why isn't China going in that same direction? Yeah, it really just comes from just like the difference of like political systems, because 
you have to keep in mind that China is a lot like Russia, where like for like you know the, for most of its history, there's been so much instability, and uh, basically the best part, the quote unquote best parts of like you know Chinese or Russian history is when you had a strong leader to sort of like lead the country in one direction. So uh, Xi Jinping. I, I, it's very difficult when you look at like you know public approval polls like in these countries because of course they'll say like you know like i'm making this number of like 90 percent of chinese people support xi jinping well of course the state is going to like say that like the majority of the people support the country but i think there actually is a grain of truth in that because a lot of these countries that have had this like instability for such a long time they want a strong leader to like lead them like in a successful direction and if you look at like how china is now now the standard of living across the country it's still you know pretty poor compared to like most other developed countries but like in the big cities um it's much better than it is before you know everybody has smartphones everybody's able to ironically enjoy you know the luxuries of capitalism while living under the you know quote unquote socialist country but all of that is directed by the ccp so they give their people a degree of economic liberalization. So instead of being like North Korea, where the people are poor and, you know, they're suffering like under a terrible, you know, autocrats, uh, the Chinese people, they live under, you know, an autocrat, but they have a degree of economic freedom that keeps them satiated, that makes it less likely that they'll go against the CCP. So going back to your original article and talking about um, how North Korea ties into this, what would you say is the significance of having that North Korea, Hong Kong relationship and how strong is it mm -hmm. really? Yeah. Well, uh, so yeah, my piece, it kind of like goes into the weeds about that. In the very beginning, I look at like the Korean war of like what Hong Kong's role in that was uh, a lot of people, especially like on the first, the Korean war is like the forgotten war for most people. It's the war that, you know, it's a very important war for like in this area of the world, but Americans today, especially don't remember, you know, why it's important, what like the implications are, but besides us, the British also fought on that war. And so did many UN countries on our side. And Hong Kong was sort of like this buffer zone between, you know, strategic location for the British to move their troops onto the Korean peninsula to like fight this war with us. And uh, Hong Kong is a lot like, um, uh, Korea itself, because Korea was occupied by the Japanese for many decades. And the Japanese, they also took over Hong Kong during World War II. But during the Korean War, they ended up on opposite sides. So that's the very beginning. But um, when the Korean War ended, uh, Hong Kong was like the strategic location for the Cold War, because it's a former Chinese territory that's owned by the British, which is, you know, on like the Western Bloc during like this, uh, you know, communism versus capitalism struggle. So you have that. But then when uh, Hong Kong is handed over back to China, uh, the UK actually normalized relations with North Korea shortly after. And now China basically has like way more uh, influence on the Hong Kong island itself for economics, for, you know, commerce, for that sort of thing. So basically as time has gone on, as like this mainland influence has increased in Hong Kong, it's been much easier for these North Korean companies to do cooperation with these Chinese companies. So as an example, there's like economic zones where basically it's like these enterprises for China and North Korea to cooperate with each other. And within these economic zones, you have these Hong Kong companies, firms that were based in Hong Kong or are based in Hong Kong, doing this business on the Korean Peninsula with North Korea. But the problem with that is, is that North Korea is a very heavily sanctioned country and the sanctions have increased as North Korea has increased its missile testing and its nuclear testing. So on the world stage, North Korea is a pariah. But among the few countries that support North Korea is China. 
China and also with Russia at the UN has constantly asked for sanctions relief on North Korea. And while they're requesting for the sanctions relief, North Korea is continuing to test missiles, it's continuing to develop nuclear weapons. And of course, while, you know, China claims to like agree to like enforce sanctions on the side, you know, things are a bit different. It's letting these businesses run in uh, Hong Kong, you know, to help North Korea launder money. And it's also helping North Korea engage what are known as ship to ship transfers. So we're like in on the ocean, basically two vessels can like uh, exchange goods with each other, or uh, in North Korea's case, send crude oil to these North Korean tanker ships. And then the oil goes to North Korea. And that oil, the petroleum, the fuel that's used to help uh, its weapons program. So North Korea and Hong Kong trading with each other how, how does that impact like the world economy as a whole as a whole mm -hmm. well i mean you have to keep in mind north korea is like a very very small economy so in terms of like world economy it's a very minimal impact uh, north korea actually well people don't even realize this but north korea is actually has normalized relations with most countries it's really only just like the us uh, japan and like a handful of other countries that don't have normalized relations with north korea but in North Korea's case, what's happened is because of the sanctions, so many of these countries can't trade with North Korea legally or through the official channels. Uh, North Korea is banned from using uh, the American banking system and also many world uh, you know, banking systems. And so what the regime needs is a currency because the North Korean one is basically uh, worthless compared to other currencies. It wants like the foreign currencies to boost its economy. But especially uh, it's really not uh, i think useful to look at through like world economic uh, impact it's more just you know useful like how does this affect north korea's economy and um what we've seen uh, during the pandemic is that north korea has completely sealed itself off from the rest of the world for the most part and cutting itself off from foreign trade has been very bad for its economy and very bad for its people there are many food shortages uh, there's a, a many like shortages of like uh, critical medical supplies too but before this china and uh, you know through, through Hong Kong and with China, this was like the lifeline for the regime. So because Hong Kong was such a big business hub for Asia and uh, because North Korea is so strained by these sanctions, Hong Kong was a very uh, useful route for North Korea to get the currency it needed and to continue running these illegal operations. Yeah, you're talking about North Korea basically locking itself up in its own prison, I suppose you yeah. could say. I, I think... When they're showing like COVID deaths or, or something like that, they're showing like zero. Mm -hmm. But that's because, like you were saying, they're not going to tell anyone any of the information outside of its own people. Like, we're not going to tell anyone how many people have actually died in North Korea from COVID. Yeah. Come on. It's funny you say that because, like, uh, North Korea actually submits its own testing data to the World Health Organization. And at NK News, we report those numbers, but they always say zero positive cases. But what they say is, like, this number of people showed uh, influenza like symptoms or like acute respiratory infection. They don't say, you know, positive cases of COVID 19. They say uh, flu symptoms or uh, acute respiratory infection. So they like playing like all these sort of like word games to like get around that. But obviously we have no idea how many people have COVID in North Korea. You know, even as much as I like could seal itself up in the rest of the world, there's still ways of, you know, viruses spreading even to like the most remote places. Yeah. I don't think a virus is going to care that you're not trading with other, you know, like America and Japan is recognized. I don't think a virus is going to care about that. Yeah. But, but to, to, you know, be fair though, you've probably heard stories that if anybody has COVID in North Korea, they'll be killed. Um, North Korea has many human rights issues, but there's no evidence of that being true. 
And when we talk about North Korea, I really want to emphasize that we shouldn't overstate the case. We shouldn't exaggerate how bad things are over there because you don't you don't need to exaggerate it. We already know how bad things are for the people over there. I mean, the human rights situation was already terrible, obviously, before the pandemic. But because of the pandemic, it's just given the state more excuses to like lock its people up and to like, you know, impose more restrictions on movement. And I know that it, especially like I assume in like your libertarian circles, a lot of people were like, you know, uh, complaining about like mask mandates, you know, vaccine mandates, all of that. And of course, there's a healthy debate to be had with those issues. But North Korea's hands down was like the worst, you know, restrictions for any country in the world. Yeah. And I heard someone talk about Japan and how they reacted to it. And I mean, they were, they were saying that for the most part it was voluntary i mean they're yes. kind of saying you know yeah we should we 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 strongly suggest you wear a mask and you should get a vaccine and just how the culture is there in japan mm-hmm. it's kind of that you know follow the the leader i suppose kind of a, a culture and so i would probably guess a very high percentage of people are vaccinated and wear a mask. i mean even before all this was happening yes. they were wearing masks anyway it was just who they are yeah, I've gotten into these debates too. I, I also, uh, you and me, I think we're in similar circles. We have a lot of conservative and libertarian followers, and there's a lot of anti-mask people and anti-vaccine people. And uh, you know, my my view on that that's all of a personal choice. It's all about like what you want to do. I'm not going to force you. I, I I'm not comfortable with forcing people to do things and uh, and things like that. But I mean, with Japan, it's all it, it's all voluntary, and because it's voluntary, I think that compels people to just get the vaccine naturally and to just mask up naturally. I've always believed that if you force somebody to do something, you're going to have the opposite effect. And Japan has some of the highest vaccination rates in the world. And that was without any kind of vaccine mandates. And uh, unfortunately, that's a double edged sword, though, because I think when like masks are technically like not necessary, like legally, but I I would imagine that even when the government says you don't have to wear masks anymore, you're still going to have people wearing masks for, I think, many months, maybe even years because they're just so used to it now. So that's more of something, though, that's like you can't really like uh, legalize culture. You, it's uh, the mentality among the people. It has to be something they come to on their own. Yeah. And American culture is definitely a lot different than Japanese yes. culture. And just when, like you were saying, how the government was basically telling people, you may see Joe Biden put on a mask. Oh, wow. He looks so cool. Wow. Look at that guy. He's so awesome. And then people be like, just wear a mask. That's what the problem is. But it's just how the different uh, or how the cultures kind of clash. Yeah. When you and me talked the last time, which was at the end of 2020, that was when the pandemic was especially bad. And at that point, I said, yeah, wear masks. I think it's, it's important, you know, at this stage of where we are now. But I mean, we're like two, two years removed from all of this now. And the, the question is, like, when is this enough? You know, when can we go back back to normal? And I, I ran a poll on Twitter. I, I said, so if Trump was like pro-mask from the very beginning, do you think Democrats would have the opposite position where they would be anti-mask because Trump is pro-mask? And conversely, do you think Republicans would be pro-mask if like, you know, Trump said, you know, be pro-mask? And a lot of people said that, yeah, probably the positions would be reversed because in America, because of the political partisanship and because of how everything's a culture war now, that they probably would do that regardless of what the science says. Yeah, exactly. Um, so switching gears and kind of moving away from all that, uh, we're going to talk about something that I found interesting and, uh, we're going to talk about, um, 
I guess an important figure in, in, in world history. And his name is Edward Snowden. Yes. And so you, you, you said, as I'm sure some of my audience may, may think this is blasphemous. I don't know. And maybe some people will agree with you. Who knows? But you're basically saying, I'm just going to say the gist of it. You're basically saying that Edward Snowden had his, had his place in history but I think nowadays he should probably just worry about his own life and family and, and basically yes. stop kind of intervening with his opinions on things because, well, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll let you explain the whole thing of what you were talking about with that. And then we'll go from there. So, yeah, I'll preface this by saying in 2013, I was very pro Edward Snowden. I thought that what he did of like revealing the extent of illegal NSA surveillance on the American public, I thought that was a good thing. And I thought that was a public good. And, um, I was in that time, I was very pro whistleblower. You know, I thought like if a government is doing something illegal and something that's detrimental to its citizens and there's no legal recourse to expose that, I think it's a good thing if like that gets revealed. And I followed his case very closely. And at the time I was very much like in the camp of, so why don't more people care about this? Why don't more people care about surveillance of people, of, you know, of citizens from the government, especially when it breaks laws. And uh, unfortunately, though, as time went on, I kind of felt that like Edward Snowden and as well as people like Julian Assange and um, Chelsea Manning, they became too in love with their own legend. They basically made everything about them, whether they intended to or not. I think the story shifted to just them as individuals and them, you know, their own their own lives as like in the center of these cases rather than what they exposed. But even with that, though, as I've done more research and as I've thought about it over time, I think there's a bit of irresponsibility of like doing these like mass leaks because we know that, for example, like with WikiLeaks, with uh, Julian Assange, a lot of those like so-called uh, redacted documents, they weren't redact fully redacted. They were kind of like sort of like, you know, this part is censored and this part is censored. But this part, you know, it could reveal disastrous information that could actually compromise national security. And the thing with Edward Snowden, though, specifically is, though, so as, as everybody knows, we're in the, Russia and Ukraine like are in the middle of a war. And Edward Snowden is living in Putin's Russia, because that was the only country that could uh, accept him. And I understand that, that that was the only country that he could end up going to. The problem is, though, is that first he said that, like, uh, you know, Russia wouldn't, wouldn't invade Ukraine, that we have nothing to worry about. And then, of course, you know, contrary to that, Russia did invade Ukraine and they're still waging war against Ukraine. Uh, they've brought forth like a terrible death toll. You know, they're destroying Ukrainian culture. Uh, it's a terrible war, and I don't you really don't need to get into that, though. We, we know that already. But with Edward Snowden specifically, I understand that he can't probably criticize Putin. He can't, you know, come out and say that, you know, this is bad, this is terrible. I understand that. What I don't appreciate is that as he's living under this uh, terrible autocrat, this terrible dictator, he's he thinks that his place is to criticize American domestic policy, especially at a time when Putin is criticizing the West. Putin is the regime is like really, you know, dialing up the anti-America, the anti-Western rhetoric. So if you just look at this from like an optics perspective, is it really a good thing where if like, you know, Edward Snowden, you know, somebody who used to be in American government, he fled to Russia and now when he goes, he takes a break off of social media. And then when he comes back, he spends his time criticizing America. I just don't think that's really helpful, uh, you know, in this situation. And I think in a worst case scenario, that's a propaganda victory for the Russians. Well, I think you can make an argument, uh, more of an argument for Julian Assange. I mean, you see some of the like footage of him and just how much of a, how his body's deteriorated over time and how, when he's sure. in, uh, 
like in jail or, or I guess in prison or whatever you want to call it that he's under it's terrible situations. And so with Julian Assange, I'm definitely more, I don't, I don't know what the right term is, but like sympathetic, I suppose I'm, I'm more understanding of the people who support him and want him free. Like, I, again, I'm probably more in that camp of, I think Julian Assange should be free and I think he should basically just go home and be able to live his life however he sees fit. With Edward Snowden, it's a little bit more of a complicated issue, I think, uh, because, like you said, he is in Russia right now because they were the only country that would allow him in. And and again, I think, like you were saying, some the things that he had shown were important to kind of let people know not just in America, but around the world, because I think he also talked about um, other countries, what they were doing, uh, at least the governments were doing. And I, I think that, I think the public does have a right to know, like your government is doing some really shady, weird, crappy things. And the public should have a right to know about that. Now, like you were saying, I think for, I don't know how long the span was for maybe for like three or four months or something like that. He didn't say anything about ru when Russia invaded. I well, I think he did say something along the lines of like, I was wrong. I got it right. wrong or something like that. And he wasn't the only one. A lot of people got it wrong. A lot of people are saying it's not going to happen. And the reason why they're thinking that is because Russia was saying this over and over again. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. This is a red line. We're going to do this. And then when they hear it again, that they're possible, Ukraine saying they're going to invade well, they've been crying wolf for years. So, of course, we kind of have to go back to the, well, it's not going to happen. But then when it does happen, everyone's kind of like, oh, now what do we do? Whoa, now we got to think yeah. of something else to say or whatever. And I understand that, too. But it's just that, like, okay, if he's not going to – I can understand, like, if he's in a position where he can't comment about Ukraine, he can't criticize Russia. But why just talk at all then? I think, especially now, we know that he has a kid now. And his uh, – I don't know if they married, but, like, his partner moved with him to Russia now. In his position, if I were him, I would focus on his own family and focus on his own personal life rather than like wading into like these uh, political issues and especially uh, criticizing America and criticizing the West when we're in like a war where propaganda is everything and where optics is everything. I know it sounds like it might sound trivial to some people, but I mean, that helps uh, Putin, that helps the regime. And if it was like a nobody, for example, if it was just like a normal person, maybe it wouldn't matter so much. But Edward Snowden, he's a former member of the US government. And uh, no matter how many times he wants to say that, like, you know, he's not pro-Putin, he's not, like, you know, helping them. That really doesn't matter in the end, though, because the government itself, the Russian government, they can use that him as a propaganda tool to help their cause. Yeah, it's, that is interesting about the optics, and it does look that way for sure. Um, I think, uh, I, yeah, maybe Edward just feels that he's kind of in that tight spot where, it's like it's like someone else living in another country, like someone living in France and going, man, Australia is doing some, yeah. and it's just all the time. They're just talking about Australia. Like, well, what what yeah. about France? You know, and, and I get into it too because, like, you know, so I'm an American and I moved to Japan, and occasionally I'll talk about America, but I never really tell America like how it should run its laws. 
I mean, like, for, so I, this is a, for a principle of mine. As an American citizen abroad, I can vote in American elections, but I choose not to vote in elections because I don't think it's my place as like a person who's not part of American society anymore to choose how American society, what direction should go in. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's definitely easier to criticize the American government as an American than yeah. criticizing the Russian government as a Russian. I mean, I don't know, maybe someone can correct me on that, but from my understanding, that's that's what I would think it would be like. So again, maybe that's just how Edward feels is that, well, if I criticize, you know, I don't want to have my put my family in danger. But yeah, like maybe just don't say anything at all then. I'm just like trying to like grab my mind. What is his mentality at the moment? Like what 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 who does it help for him to like speak about like American issues? I and I know that like the abortion thing is a very big thing now, like in, in U.S. Uh, you know domestic circles of like domestic policy. But mm -hmm. like, does, who does Edward Snowden help by like speaking out against any of this? He can't even do anything himself. He's like an American who lives like you know in in a country where there is no free speech and whatever criticisms he has of American society. I just think that like uh, it's very easy for like the Russian government to like uh, you know turn that around and say, yeah, you see, you know. Here's somebody he like lived in your country and now he was betrayed by his government. He just wanted to like help his citizens. He just wanted to help his people. But now he, he's on our side now. Well, also, he's had movies made about him, had one yes. uh, documentary yes. win an Oscar. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's all gone to his head. I don't know. I'm not obviously I'm not Edward Stone. I don't know what he's thinking. So I have no idea. Yeah. And it's just that, like I have like an issue. So like I've seen that documentary. I've also seen the Oliver Stone adaptation of like Snowden. It's to me like it's entertaining. Yes. But I mean, like, do these movies like, the documentary I can understand because it's just about like history about what happened. But like, does Edward Snowden really need like a, you know, dr dramatized movie? Like, is he really somebody who's like worthy of like, you know, uh, like a fictional like narrative film? Because like he, he said, like in the beginning, this isn't about me. This is about what I've exposed. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, there's a Hollywood movie based about you, dude. <laughs> I don't know how it could like not be about you at this point. Well, I think in this day and age, I think having a movie made about Chelsea Manning would seem more, more in avenue of what Hollywood does nowadays. <laughs> sure, but but it's it's just though it's like um um what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought there for a second. <laughs> for a second, but the, yeah. But anyways, like the point is though, it's like these like whistleblowers and everything. It should be about like what they expose, and it should be about like what they're doing. But I think it's very easy for like bad actors on like you know both sides to like use it for their advantage. So, as I'm sure you remember, there was a time where like WikiLeaks was like the darling of the left because it kind of exposed the bad stuff that like uh, America was doing. You know, for its foreign policy, bad or like shady. You know, kind of suspicious, but. The problem with that, though, is like that's ammo for people like Noam Chomsky, who will always criticize American foreign policy, who will always blame America for everything wrong with the world. And uh, so I think that like the problem with like with people like that is it's very easy for like that Amer anti-American, that anti-Western crowd. So they basically use that to their advantage. But then on the opposite side of that, as you remember, in 2016, WikiLeaks had like the whole hack of the uh, DNC about the corruption of the Democratic Party. Now, all of a sudden, WikiLeaks is the darling of the right and the left hates WikiLeaks. So. I mean, as like an outsider looking in, I think it shows the hypocrisy of both sides, but it also shows you like more practically how like both sides can use that to their advantage. And it, it kind of like raises the question, like, do do people actually like care or are they just using this to score political points against the opposition? Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that's just that's just how politics is, is if my side's gaining traction, I'm all for it. If the other side's gaining traction, I'm going to do everything I can to fight it and 
I want them to lose and and all that. It's just how it is, especially in American politics. I mean, I know, I know, uh, like you're saying before and how you've said a lot about how the Japanese people don't really talk about politics. It's not like something they go, Oh man, did you see what so-and-so did in the, in the mm -hmm. diet today? It's not like a topic yeah. of conversation. Hardly. Honestly, I found it funny because during the 2020 election, like they were looking at like the map of like there were Japanese networks covering the American election, and said so they're more enthusiastic about the American election than they are about their own election because you had like all these like panel panelists like just saying like who could win what state, you know, it's almost like a sports game, you know, what team is going to win what game, you know, what direction is it going to go in? But I think maybe that's just it speaks to the point that maybe American politics is more entertaining in a lot of ways, and I think there's been a lot of there's been an unfortunate blend of politics and entertainment. Yeah, especially with, I mean, at least nowadays with Trump having been president and and all that. And uh, yeah, it's definitely entertaining for sure. I mean, at least for some people it is. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll go ahead and end it there. Sure. Uh, so Oliver, I really appreciate you coming on and for uh, giving your perspective on, on all this and for talking about your article. Yeah, that was uh, a pleasure. Uh, yeah. There, you know, I'm always happy to talk about North Korea, China, freedom, any kind of topic. Yeah. So let people know where they can find you and, and uh, your work and, and all that. Yes. Going. Uh, uh, Twitter is the best place to follow me. I uh, post every day. I recently passed 30,000 followers. So I appreciate everybody for that. Um, the hashtag gets Oliver Ja, uh, Oliver J-I-A, and then 1014. But if you just look up my name, my Twitter is like the first thing that should pop up. So, yeah, follow me there for my uh, latest articles and uh, whatever I'm talking about. All right. Well, thanks again, all for coming on. And for you, thank you for watching and listening. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating over on iTunes. And if you write a review for our podcast, tell us how much you love the hot bath no state. Thank you. Have a good one.